Hello, everyone, and welcome to the most dysfunctional start to any podcast we've had in months. I'm your host, Spencer. This is Constructive Criticism, and I am joined by my co-host, a man whose camera can't decide how to freaking act, Abe Stein. Yeah, it's really, uh, just do his own thing. (laughs) And a man who just wants to be invited, Mason Clark. Invite me. (laughs) I love inside jokes. It's so good. I literally don't know what it means. So it's an inside joke between you and Abe, and I am with the audience completely lost. One time Abe said, invite me. I'm very fun at parties after you, well, actually someone. And I'll just never forget. He's like, well, actually someone. And then he just goes, invite me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'll never forget. This was like three or four months ago at this point. So it's really topical. It's it, yeah. you know it, it it's been top of mind for Mason for so long that he had he had to like say it six times before we started. Uh, uh let's be That's honest, guys. Like we haven't we haven't done this in a while. Recall, good for the soul. Uh, I, but like this, like the the three of us, the th- the three amigos, the three musketeers. It's I feel like, like a, that's why we're all bouncing off the walls. You know, yeah, it's like, we're like so excited to see each other. Yeah, I think it was all October. We didn't have a, a three personer. Yeah. Well, these three people. We had guests and stuff, but yeah, mm-hmm. that's good to be here. Uh, that's yeah. not the point of the show. The point of the show is to be always improving, to be better today than you were yesterday. And Mason, I'm gonna mix up this format. I'm gonna let you go first because we're dying to know. No, what show notes are important. Is... You have to respect the show notes. You're up first, Spencer. <laughs> I, 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 I I'm trying to practice respecting the show notes and so do you you're up first parmesan goes last okay uh the <laughs> teaser the parmesan teaser uh yeah so i will go first then i i'll respect the show notes i think that's fair uh so lately i've been working on work um starting a new job has been rough especially when my son has been in the hospital twice um so for those who don't know like you know i've, I've been missing weeks and like for some of those weeks it was because I, my son had to be monitored. He, you know, was having breathing problems. And if you're a parent, you're probably pretty worried about RSV if you're a parent of a young kid. And my son happens to have asthma and also happened to get a respiratory virus. So it's, it, it was a rough month in October to say the least. Um, with that being said though, since our last episode, I did get to play a bunch of mono blue. And there are two cards that I want to highlight. And also say that we're going to record a bonus episode on the deck because congrats to Mason for winning his RCQ with Mono Blue uh, in Standard. Uh, but there are two cards that I want to highlight that I've been really impressed by. The, the first one and the one I want to talk about the most... Actually, we'll just talk about the one. Is March of the Swirling, March of Swirling Mist. That card... Uh, when I first saw it, it was like an immediate cut for me in deck lists. I was like, I don't, there's no way that this is good. Um, tried it again. And this card uh, was one that it go- just kind of goes to show, like, maybe don't make assumptions about deck lists before you try them and actually try out stuff. Uh, this card just wins games that you have no right winning by wiping your opponent's board for a turn when you have, like, five fives in play that are, st- like, stalled out because of, you know, how much stuff can be in play. Uh, and then the fact that it is extreme, it gets cheaper for one when you have the... Um, it just turns into like a phase your own guy out when you have the the gin in play, and then uh, it also can like save your board from a wrath, which nothing else in your deck can do. The uh, card is actually totally bonkers in the deck, and 
you know, it, it, it is, I don't know that the always improving moment is more about not changing deck lists before you try them, or if it's more about understanding, like trying to understand why somebody would put a card in the deck. Uh, but that would be my always improving moment around mono blue. Um, yeah, that's, that's it for me. Any thoughts on that guys? I'm really happy you brought up the like kind of pseudo dive down you get to do with, uh, with it and haughty gin. Cause I feel like that's something where, uh, when I first saw this list, I was like, okay, I guess you can like kind of get rid of any blockers for like Tolarian Terror or whatever, or, you know, but using the whole, the whole buffalo, as it were, and being able to use it on your own creatures, kind of dodge removal spells, or even sweepers, like you were saying, I feel like is uh, something that, at first glance, you're like, what does this card even do? But I'm glad that as, you, as you've been playing with it, you kind of found that all the use cases are really important. So I feel like that's a really, really cool aspect of that card. Yeah, it, it the pseudo dive down is sick, right? Because it's just like a dive down for your, easily your best creature. But also... Um, you know, there people people be trying different wraths out to try and figure out which wraths are the best, and this is a good way to to stop that. Yeah, I think you you kind of mentioned how you're like oh, I don't know if like this is how to say they always remember this, but what it kind of jumps out to me about it is it's like think about cards and how they interact with the format, not only the format but also the deck you're presenting, right? And it's like a good example that is like. Oh yeah, Hottie Gin in this, it does create like a dive down or like, you know, basically tap target creature, right? And like that's kind of like interesting and like does a unique thing. Like maybe that's worth considering playing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh hey, what about you? Yeah, so um my always improving moment has come from uh helping people with their process for preparing for the upcoming uh RC in the US. So I have a lot of um friends who are qualified are really really trying to kind of be on the cutting edge of pioneer right now and something that i know in the past and something that i even do a lot when i'm preparing for just regular like week week tournaments is i'll really have to push myself when it comes to responding positively to new ideas um because it's it's really easy to fall back on the idea of just doing things that are proven and so something that I've really been trying to do in this process that I feel has really helped me have some really good conversations about, um, you know, cards that are being previewed or even just decks that I might not have considered or um, ideas that are being considered is to kind of say yes first and explore the whole idea and really remind myself that that's a much more important thing to do for a tournament like the RC than maybe it is for when I'm playing my local 2K or my local uh, RCQs of like, yeah, I could probably just bring Rakdos or bring, you know, whatever modern deck I feel is good that weekend and, and not get too fancy, not get too cute. But um, when you really have a lot of incentive to do well, you have to look towards unconventional ideas, the things that people wouldn't necessarily try when the incentives line up for you to just do the proven thing over and over again and do it well. Um, and that's been something that I think has been a struggle for me in the past and really focusing on doing that in the groups I'm in as a role of someone who doesn't necessarily have um, the same skin in the game as someone who's qualified um, and is playing the event, but giving them a space to explore their ideas um, and be a, a balance more for them has been really uh, a valuable thing for me this uh, last couple of weeks. That's awesome. I'm not going to lie. I thought you were going to use your always improving moment from our group chat. So I, I'm happy to, uh, to hear this one. I would never double down, baby. It's not doubling down. 
Uh, I have an always improving moment. I yelled at Abe before the start of the show, and I just realized that the mistake was actually on my end. Um, and I, I'm sorry, Abe. I appreciate that. Mason. Yeah, so uh, my always improving moment uh, comes from this idea that I kind of had for a while now, and uh, really giving a name to it and kind of flushing it out. And I like wrote a whole thing that currently is on my Patreon, but maybe it's going to end up on Card Kingdom or somewhere too. I don't know. But um, basically, the the idea is called Parmesan. That's what Spencer mentioned earlier on the show. He's like, I gotta know what Parmesan is. I just wrote Parmesan in there. Follow me on Twitter. You saw me tweet about it. And it's like a whole article thing to really get into it, but I'll try and TLDR compress it here for listeners. The idea basically is uh, every... Hey, uh, hold on, Mason. Before you go into this, uh, I want you to sell me on Parmesan. I want you to have constructive criticism by this Parmesan article. So that that's that's what's happening right now. Okay. So I'm going to uh, pay you more than the mana traders if you sell me. Okay, I can't uh, publish articles on other websites. Oh, well, I then never publish... mind. I'll edit this out. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I have a non-compete clause there. But apparently, Patreon doesn't count. That's what I was told, which seems weird, but okay. Never. Don't argue. Uh, so basically, the idea behind it is um, if you've played other games, like other strategy games, so like that, you maybe heard of like a chi strategy, right? So if you played StarCraft II, for example, there's like six pooling someone, which is because all in kind of gambit, right? And cheese decks exist in Magic. And, you know, a great example of this, if you're trying to think of one, is the Tybalt Trickery deck in Pioneer that we saw Aspiring Spike kind of promote. And everyone kind of accepts it's a meme, but you see it a lot in leagues because it's fun. And, you know, two, threes, three, twos, and just leads to these crazy, wacky games. But often, cheese strategies can be sort of broken up and picked apart, and then you're so all in on them that you lose. So those are cheese strategies, right? But if you have a good pasta, you know, or like a good salad, sometimes you put a little Parmesan on the top, right? A little cheese. So a lot of people would call this like a splinter quick, right? Like they would say like, oh, my deck has a splinter coin element to it. But I think that actually does a really poor job of pretty, of conveying what your deck is trying to do. And so I came up with the word Parmesan because your deck has a little bit of cheese in it, but it's not all in on it. So two good examples of this are uh, Underworld Breach and Current Modern. That deck can play a fair, grindy, sort of tempo-y game. It can do either of those. Or it can combo kill you. Now, that deck leans a little bit maybe in more on the combo than a lot. But there have been past iterations of the deck that don't do that. Like in early March with Jesse Robkin, who guessed in the show. Her deck was much more a tempo deck that had the combo built in. Now it's kind of more of a combo deck with a tempo thing. And then we've seen in Legacy, actually, over the last month, a uh, friend of the show, Samantha, she had a tempo Doomsday deck that she brought to the Legacy pit and basically, the idea was like, hey, I'm playing basically like Grixis Merktide, but I also have Doomsday and Thassa's Oracle on my deck, and I can play these multiple game plans. And so she kind of is like, hey, I'm playing this fair deck, but I also have this oops, I win thing. And so I go a little bit more into it. I talk about pseudo wins and sort of hard wins. But basically, the, uh, the Parmesan theory is you present a deck that presents a real game plan, but it has some backdoor thing that's oops, I win. And I have different like layers of it. So for example, Hammer Time, like kind of has some oops I went to it, but like you maybe wouldn't call it Parmesan deck. Yeah, thank you. Like I was always improving during this part of the segment, so that was that was great, Mason. No. Uh really quickly, just want to give some Patreon shout outs. Shout out to Larry and Mark. Uh thank you so much for being a part of the show. Really quickly, uh this has been a recurring theme and I don't think these guys have joined 
the Discord yet, um, you should be getting an, a welcome message in the form of either an email or a message on Patreon that has the link to the Discord uh, for you when you when you join. That was not happening both for us and for Drafting Archetypes this last month. So if it's not happening, please message us on Patreon and we can continue to do that. I do believe it's fixed because I haven't heard any more reports of it. But if you are listening to this, you're like, hey, I never got that message. Let me know. I'll be happy to make sure that you get that. Uh, some quick housekeeping. Guys, isn't this shirt sick? Like, isn't it so cool for the, the audio listeners? Yes, I'm thinking about how good that blue and white G with Lehigh under it looks on that uh, nice hexagonal kind of honeycomb grid. Yeah, it's a game grid, get it? Uh, uh, honestly, our sponsor Game Grid is so amazing. I, uh, I've been there so much to buy cards recently as I'm building up my collect magic collection again, and they are absolutely fantastic. Uh, the owner Jordan has now made all of their store championships, um, a one case, and then he also made all of their RCQs this season standard. Listening to feedback from none other than us, the people. So I, I just think that like, you know, if you're you don't have, uh, you know, you're, you're hesitant on where to spend your magic dollars. Game Grid is a great place to do it. Uh, you can use the code CCMDQ10 at checkout. Get 10% off your first order. Um, and then you can just use the link in the show notes, and it gives a little bit of a kickback to us. You know, Mason likes kickbacks because he, you know, he gets to spend it on uh, Flaming Hot Cheetos, so. And Parkelians. And Parmesan, so. I don't actually like that much Parmesan. That's the dirty secret about all this. But the oh. idea came to me in a... Yeah, it's like a little Parmesan. In an olive garden somewhere. I was just thinking... <laughs> PV would be so proud. Yeah. Last last bit of housekeeping is that our standard event is still, you know, coming up. We're, we're still doing that Q4 event. Um, so make sure to head over to the link in the show notes to sign up. It will be on Arena. Um, free entry to all patrons of $10 or more. Greatly appreciated. And also, like... You know, I, I think that we're in a really cool standard format um, that it's funny that people are like, oh, John's the best deck like after one week. And they're like, I don't even think that's true. Like, I, I think that there are so many decks in this format that can win. I actually think Grixis is the best deck in this format, um, followed by Esper. So it was really funny to see like the week one reactions after that and be like, oh, it's all John. This format sucks. It didn't even matter. So, Yeah. Check out, check that out. Um, let's go into a training grounds. Our main topic this week is a modern deep dive. In perfect timing, the last time we talked about modern, Mason, you actually gave us a really in-depth guide on how to play four color Yorion. How has modern changed since then? They banned Yorion, <laughs> and that has had some drastic ramifications on the format. The top end of what you're kind of able to do, and the pressure when it comes to control decks has shifted some, despite there being some decks that look maybe reminiscent, you know, when you kind of quickly glance at them, to what the Yorion deck was. Uh, I have two questions. One, what percentage of this is your fault? And two, um, how do you as a Yorion, you know, extremist, as I will call you, uh, feel about this change? Well, one, I would say it's a lot my fault. Uh, you know, we don't have to get into how my deck list for the ones that ever won big tournaments in the States. It's fine. Uh, but we can move on. Uh, I think the thing that has changed the most is 
the thing that I've taken away from it, the banning and looking at the new four color decks, is actually something I think Abe said on that episode, or maybe it was the episode of the banning, but Abe basically said there's something to like answer density where the deck was able to play so many answers. And maybe you didn't have the right answer at the right time, like we had talked about in the deep dive episode. Or, you know, like you have something to answer a turn one creature, but sometimes it's Bolt, sometimes it's Prismatic Ending, sometimes it's Quaddle, right? Like you have something to do in the first turn cycles, uh, but you don't always have maybe often one where you have to make it a little awkward. The deck can no longer, you know, because really it had about 12 extra cards, you had eight more lands in the deck, and those 12 extra cards really mattered. And having, you know, Yorion be there to re- the flicker your abundant growth and kind of draw into more answers and be a thing to win the game has really changed the deck. So, you know, not having that huge density of answers and that free thing to win has forced these decks to really change and turn to much, much more like blue-white control decks uh, of old and can't really turn the corner in that same impactful way. Let's talk and about... <laughs> what? Well, that in Karuga now is kind of taking over that spot, but we'll talk about that later in the show. Cool. Let, let's go on to kind of the decks that are... Doing well. Uh, I think the first one was... I, I was really surprised to hear people say that they did not think that this deck would suddenly take over the format. Um, I, In fact, I heard people say the opposite, but number one deck, uh, it, it's it's Murktide. Um, Abe, what are your thoughts on this deck after the bannings? Yeah, I mean, for one, I think that like, the biggest thing keeping me from wanting to play Murktide myself was the four-color matchup. That had kind of a matchup that over time had evolved as, like, the Murktide players had to figure out how to beat what the four-color players were doing. And it, it was, like, this big, like, high-level strategic arms race that you could see play out in the challenges week over week over months. And it was just, like, such an important matchup to know how to navigate that if you didn't have that knowledge... It was like a pretty big barrier to clear. Um, but without four color, um, Murtide really is just back to being the thing that is the check on the format in the way that um, four color was kind of uh, a check on Murtide once it, it came about on, on Murtide and Hammer. So I think that it's just really hard in a format now where the best card has gone from uh, being like Renin Six and Yorion to being. Ragavan to say the deck that is the best deck at being a Ragavan deck is anything but the de facto best deck. Yeah, I, I'll jump in really quickly. I think that uh, there was a tweet. Uh, I don't remember who who it was, but they were like, you know, people think that Boomer Jund is you know X or Y in modern, and it, the truth is is that Boomer Jund is just straight up Murktide. And I said I've been saying that since I picked it up. Like as somebody that's played a lot of both of these decks. It, the, it is, that is what this deck is. It is this 50-50 deck that if you decide to do something even a little off the beaten path that doesn't beat it, it becomes a, like, 90-10 deck, and you're just, you're not gonna beat that. Um, but that means that it's, like, right now a 55 deck, and um, as somebody that, like, plays, uh, is has been learning a game that a lot of matchups are in that zone, right? That the 55-60-45 zone. Th- those percentage points are really impactful. Um, I-, I think that this deck does a couple things. It was really cool to hear some of our my local players talk about the Blood Moon um, versions of the deck and like going back to something like that. But also just seeing 
there there's been a lot of variations in lists in this deck that were not happening other than the number of Merc Tides. Uh, like it, it actually opened up the number of flex slots for this deck quite a bit. Uh, Mason, you've played it probably against against this deck more than any of us. I want your thoughts. Uh, yeah, I think I think the good description is the John, like we've been mentioning on the show. And I think another way to kind of look at it is like if your deck isn't efficient, the efficiency of Merktide will sort of bully you out of the game, and it will almost like a school bully make it known your insecurities. Like, oh, your deck's a little clunky. Like, that's not allowed to be happening here. Counterspell, you know, hit you with Riot Man again. Uh, and that sort of element to a deck, I think, is really powerful. And I think the Merktide deck kind of does that better than maybe maybe only Hammer does it more, but Hammer doesn't punish you in the same way. And I think that is kind of the difference from Merktide can answer a more robust amount of strategies, and Hammer answers them by killing them and punishing them for the inefficiencies, but Merktide kind of, you know, just stops what they're doing sometimes. So it's a, it's a strong uh, deck in the format. To me, really, I think that if I had to draw an analogy between Merktide's positioning right now and anything else going on in Magic, I would say it kind of benefits from the same positioning as uh, Rakdos Midrange and Pioneer, where it is the least easily exploitable deck in the format of all the decks that like existed before. I think that like uh, if you want to beat Merktide, you have to structurally change the way that you're approaching the game in deck building. Like what your game plan is has to be something that's attacking what Merktide wants to do. And that's just really hard to do while also handling the broadness of the format. So Merktide gets to be just the pile of the best and most efficient things to do with the best haymakers and the best interaction. And it really says you need to, you know, clear this bar if you want to want to get past me. I'm going to just dive a little bit deeper into this. Like, if you think about Jund decks historically, and even this Rakdos deck, right? And you think about the type of cards that they play, right? Those become Thoughtseize into something decks. The only difference here is that it's something into a counter spell or something into an interactive spell, right? The, the interaction just swaps places. It's not, it, and it's because of the type of things that get to happen. Because this deck gets to play Dragon Rage Channeler and uh, Ragavan, it then switches. Um, in all honesty, it's it's really similar to how Grixis Death Shadow operated, where with, with Ragavan, where it's like, okay, well, I'm gonna play uh, DRC Ragavan and this, and like try try to either disrupt you early and then play Haymaker, or it, it's it's the same thing, and. Uh, the thought seizers just become different types of interaction. And I think that is the thing that people sometimes miss. Like they think this is like a tempo deck or they think this is like this really heavy control deck. And that's just not what it is. Um, it is, it is a mid range deck keeping the format in balance. Yeah. I will say this too, much like a mid range deck um, of old, like and John Rectos, you know, from pioneer and current times, it does also have some similar issues, but cards like Expressive Iteration make those issues not as prominent. So we don't talk like about that, that on this it. podcast. We don't want that card banned in, on this show. Sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> I feel pretty confident, comfortable talking about it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Are Expressive you, Iteration, I, I think, is a, a pretty big, uh, you know, fixing point for like the Jun problems historically of running out of yeah. stuff and like not being able to sculpt your game perfectly, that combined with the like efficiency and when it comes to mana of the threat, I think changes it from like boomer jund to now. 
You know what I mean? So. Well, speaking of expressive iteration, let's talk about our next deck. Mason, why don't you tell us what it is? Yeah, so Underworld Breach, this is the other kind of blue-red deck. This one's mostly Jeskai these days, although there are some variations in the Breach deck. We've seen Teamer Breach, you know, playing Brennan Six in order to have a more fair game plan with Urza Saga as the game goes along and use things like Besaju to beat some of the hate presenting you away, presented your way. And we've also seen Mono Red Breach, which is much more leaning on things like DRC to have that sort of tempo game plan we saw back in March from the Is It builds of the deck, but have better mana and be a little cleaner. Uh, and so those are kind of the different Breach, but for the most part, when people talk about Breach, I think they talk about the Jeskai Breach deck, which uh, Corey Baumeister won the Modern Challenge with about a week ago now. Um, and we have seen the pretty big components from a lot of people. You know, Jesse, who you guys on the show a little bit, is a big fan of this deck. Corey's a big fan. Ross is a big fan. And they like talk about on Twitter a lot. And uh, it's a very good deck. Uh, it, it plays, it can play games similar to sort of tempo-y style decks and go a little long and grind with Urza Saga. But then it has that Parmesan factor, you know, where it has the combo element to it that actually just goes over the top and wins. And we're seeing a lot of different variations also, even within the Jeskai archetype of the deck, Blood Shredder, Fable of the Mirror Breaker. So still a lot of room to explore on this deck. And I don't think we found the best version of this deck. Um, but I think there's something just to this kind of core shell of, you know, Unholy Heat, Ragavan, and something is really good. Merktide players pair with Counterspell. These players go more in leaning in that combo direction. And so... Uh, Abe, you you obviously were on the episode with Jesse and I was not. Uh, one, the question I posed to you is like, was Emery Urza's Saga inevitable? Like, is that was that always going to end up happening? Just in the format in general, I think that... I mean, Emery is just such a powerful card that only gets better the more and more artifacts they print. And Emery Bobble especially, is just a really powerful engine. I think my feelings on the Breach deck, um, I don't know if you think about this on the way home from work today, um, is that the big thing that makes that the deck in such a good position right now, and the thing that has really given it an edge over the last um, like few months, has been that it is the deck that is least vulnerable to Solitude while doing something fundamentally unfair. Um, and also still playing to the board. Like it does it does all of it because all of its um its cards it plays to the board are either card positive on that kind of interaction with Solitude, which has been the tool in interacting with decks that are trying to do something unfair, especially as Hammer has been the primo um get you dead quickly deck. Um that, that has an unfair angle. Like the fact that Emery is the only thing really vulnerable, and that's even that is only one mana and you're playing a bunch of things you would naturally play anyway. Um, to enable it. And then it's like Ragavan, Urza Saga, all these cards that line up so well against this one specific card that is bearing a ton of weight um, from all of the fair decks really has made it so that uh, that Breach has just benefited from being in a really good position. Yeah, my first interaction with this deck was actually on coverage. Um, uh, I, I had not been following the Cory Baumeister saga of this deck and uh, I had to cover this deck uh, multiple times at our RCQ at Game Grid Lehigh. And honestly, my first thought was just like, sick. Like, a deck that gets to play Mox Amber is like the hottest thing since sliced bread. Like, that's that's so cool. So, um, yeah. So, next up, we have Creativity. Um, th this deck is really interesting. 
in that I think this deck has maybe evolved the most. You guys can correct me if you think I'm crazy for saying this. Like in the last, I don't know, like four months. This this deck is. If you if you told me the path that this deck took from where it started three months ago, maybe even uh, maybe maybe four months ago, like I, I'd be pretty shocked. Um, do you guys feel similarly? For the most part, yeah. I think some part of this has to do with uh, so when the ban first happened. Um, if you go back and listen to that episode. All these decks we've already talked about are ones that we kind of mentioned, and this was the one that I kind of put a caveat on, where I was like, hey, this might not look the same or be around still after the Yorion ban, because it was so good against Yorion, and that was a big selling point for the deck. Um, and it's had to almost reinvent itself in some smaller structural ways in the way it plays games, just to kind of deal with the fact that Yorion isn't this free matchup for them anymore, and have to kind of adapt to the metagame and everything that's sort of happened since then. So. I do think it's changed a good bit in that time and then have it to recently have a huge makeover again. You know, it's things like now we're seeing the persist be very common where before it was kind of a thing that maybe you had one or two of and kind of saw a little bit of here and there. Yeah, I, to, to me, like, the... It, it was already approaching that five-color difference, like, going all the way away from Grixis into this five-color deck even before the ban. And at least locally, like I was seeing this the persistent stuff. But the the thing that really changes for me is like it has really leaned into its control role and like almost acted a lot like team or state shift in a lot of ways, where it is that's like the game it's trying to play. Um, whereas before it was it like felt a little cheesy, and now it does not. Yeah, I think um, that this deck, like you were saying, it's kind of like a scapeshift deck in the sense that what it wants to do is just play the game for four or five turns and then be in a position where it can't lose. In scapeshift's case, that's resolve scapeshift in the game. But in this deck's case, it's more of resolving your creativity and setting that up. And so all of the cards um, that it plays to interact with the game have to change alongside... Um, you know, the way that the games and the format are changing. And also, I think, to keep up with the fact that overall, games are a lot harder to decide just off of, um, you know, being able to force through uh, a creativity against a slower deck like Blue-White, or um, like Four-Color more often. Um, it's shifted towards doing even more of the unfair angle, because that's really the part of the deck it needs to operate in more and more of its matchups. Than it did previously with uh, with four color being available for it to farm. That's so funny because it almost feels like it's also doing that in response to Merktide being one of the best decks. Where it's like, I if I let Merktide do Merktide stuff, like it is. This deck was really bad against Merktide before, and it feels like it's had to make a lot of adjustments to that. Yeah, it definitely feels like it needs more redundancy and ways to just kind of force and tax the amount of counter magic that the Merktide decks have. Um, and I think that the reactions that we've seen, um, not only in the way that they're constructing their things they're actually creativity into, but also just the way that they're approaching their game plan a lot more proactively is a result of uh, Merktide being Kingpin as opposed to, to Yorion. 
Yeah, that uh, and the Ovar tech really catching on in order to stop them has forced them to like change threats again, again. Um, which is a weird place to be. Uh, I want to move on to the next deck, and uh, I'm 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 curious your guys' thoughts on this. I'm gonna I'm gonna say something. Uh, the I got a call from a person that like, hey, here are the the two decks that I want to play, and I was like, you should just play Scam. I won't say what the other deck was. I was like, Scam is like top three deck in the format. You you should just play it. Um, Scam is Scam is operating in a very different space than I feel like a lot of modern decks have operated historically, uh, to the point where the this is the thing that I wanted to distract you, like where modern's getting to like old school legacy style of like ways to attack the format uh this deck's this deck's different like it, it's doing something very linear um where where do you guys land on this deck uh, abe do you want to go first i feel like i've talked a lot uh sure yeah i think um scam has really kind of it's taken all of the most powerful shut like ways you can shut down and interact in a faster manner than counterspell, right? The way that you can start to pick apart your opponent better than Merktide and really crank those all the way up. And so while it loses, it's been losing out on a lot of the ways that it can tango with uh, decks that want to play longer games or have you know better answers to their absolute best draws, which involve you know basically just grief plus uh like undying evil here's a four three you've gotten him to Turok for your best two cards good luck um really forcing the issue on them uh has made that this deck able to beat decks like uh like hammer and like murktide in ways that are a little unfair like this is a very much a parmesan deck if we're going to make this a thing for mason where uh you're playing just all all ways to make the game about the card that you just played um, and force put the onus on the opponent to answer them while disrupting them. And while I think that kind of as the format has developed and will continue to develop, that will get inherently weaker. For now, especially with a lot of the decks um, kind of moving on from the Orion Band, trying to uh, trying to find their way forward through this kind of format uh, and, and figure out where they want to be, it really preys on that really well. Yeah, it's so think- funny. There you go. It was so funny. I was going to talk about the Rebirth cheese, but I'll let Mason do that. Yeah, I, I think the Rakdos Scam deck is uh, really, really good. I, I think Rakdos Scam actually has a problem that we see with celebrities sometimes where it has a bad name, a bad PR, where when you have the name Scam attached to it, I, I see a lot of players like legitimately write it off. Um, and it is a very strong deck, like Spencer and Abe were talking about. And I do agree that what it's doing, you can maybe change what's going on. Like the format change, and then like that's not as strong, but maybe you can adapt to that. But the deck is actually really well built, and it turns cards like Undying Evil um, and Malice, etc., into things that are actually like really strong in the deck. So like we talked about Grief Turn one, but also it gives you that same sort of Fury Ephemerate that we saw from Four Color, but now in this sort of thing, and you know doing that on turn one and killing you know your opponents. Honestly, just even a Ragavan, you put a 4-4 double strike into play, that's a huge amount of pressure. 
And you combine that with Blood Moon too, which I think is a really well-positioned card. Of the decks we've talked about so far, two of them are Blood Moon decks, and two of them are decks that are weak against Blood Moon. And I think that's kind of a thing that we're going to see as we go down the list as well. And talk about even more decks. Blood Moon is really well-positioned. So I think Rakdos Scam is a very, very good deck. And there are so many more things we can talk about. We talk about how like Undying Evil and Season Pyromancer is a combo. We can talk about how just this junk game plan is good. It, it is just a very real deck. It It is high on the list of things I would take to a tournament. Yeah, I, I agree. It, when this person called me, I was like, you, you should just play that deck. I, I think that it is actually pretty insane right now. Um, really quickly though, for those who don't know, because uh, you know, I want to, I want to sprinkle in this stuff. What, what is the interaction that we want to talk about with some of these? You know, you, you talked about Undying Evil, but like, there's a, there's a lot of synergies in this deck that I think people don't pick up on at first. The last thing I'll say on this deck is that it has the ability to really play. We, we talked about actually, Abe, you talked about like Ragavan. And, like, the best Ragavan deck being, like, really high up there, right? But, like, this deck gets to play a card that basically no other deck gets to play in. It gets to play Ragavan, Dothy Voidwalker, you know, a card that people are really excited about in Season Pyramids. So, like, its creature suite is super strong. But Dothy Voidwalker, on coverage, has been both the most, like, missed card that we've had to, like, stop games for on coverage. Like, hey, guys, like, you, we gotta fix this. Uh, and also, like... What the heck? Mason, you want to talk about that really quick? Yeah, Dothy is just really good in main deck graveyard hate. Um, like, Murktide is a deck that needs its graveyard right to get the Murktide and the Unholy Heats going. Breach obviously needs their graveyard. Uh, Creativity has some really strong cards that if you end up putting it in the graveyard via countering with Thought Seizing, then putting them into play off the Dothy is very strong. Like, if I play a Dothy and then Thought Seize, you take an Archon of Cruelty, put the Dothy in. That's really strong. We also see how Dothy works well with the Undying effects, like Malakir's Rebirth and things like that, where you can target it, sack it to get the thing that was put in exile and put it back into play. So it's just a really strong hate piece that's like a pretty good body that randomly sometimes just takes over a game and, you know, just gets the main deck shut off strategies. So it's very good. Let's move on to Hammer Time. Uh, speaking of Hammer Time, I only see one color in this list in front of me, Abe. Yeah, Hammer Time continues to be in a spot where um, you can either play Mono White or you can Splash Blue. Um, that's like most of what people are doing. It's, it hasn't really changed much in that regard. What I will say is changing a lot about Hammer Time, and I think correctly so, is that people are moving back towards Memnite, uh, as opposed to, for a long time, it was like people just wouldn't even let that card touch their deck because of how many run and sixes there were, how much less important it was to play for speed. And now I feel like the format as a whole, because of the effects of um, decks like Scam or think cards like Ragavan being much more emphasized in the play patterns of the format, it's just gotten that much better to be trying to get back to being a much more proactive deck instead of knowing that you're going to be dragged into a bunch of long games most of the time by, uh, by the Orion decks or by decks that are trying to position for the Orion decks. So um, that's been like the biggest thing for me that I've seen that I really like coming back to kind of the Hammer Hive mind. The deck is still, I think, in a really good position against um, against Murktide. I think that its biggest struggles right now are definitely Scam 
and the control decks. Um, I think Breach is also kind of close. You have um, you have big issues with their sideboard plans uh, that involve them like Emery locking you with um, with engineer explosives, but Otherwise, I think the matchups like there's, there's a lot of play to it. There's a lot you can like get them on because all of their removal, other than engineer explosives and like Aether spell bomb, you beat with uh, with Sigarda's aid. So it can be tough, but um, definitely scam and and control are like the big ones to worry about. So I think overall Hammer's position has actually stayed about the same despite losing its absolute worst matchup in uh, in Yorion leaving. And I think that overall the deck should be starting to, to push back towards being a lot more faster and playing to the board, but uh, we're, we're slowly seeing that come, especially with the mono-white builds. I want to move on to Mason. You were the one that wrote the show notes this week, so I want you to explain kind of this this piece around just control decks in general and like how the format has changed to either support Control is an archetype that isn't just about value generation. Yeah, so since Yorion's banning, that was kind of the two-factor control deck. You could play other things, but you kind of had this problem where if you played against the Yorion deck as a different control deck, you were going to get over the top. You were going to lose that sort of long game. You couldn't quite actually beat it, unless you had some sort of combo finish like Scape Shift, which we saw pop up a little bit during the end of the Yorion lifespan. That was kind of the only way to really outgrind the Yorion stuff. So now that that's gone, there's a lot of like questions about like, okay, well, if I want to play a controlling deck, how do I actually do this? And we've seen a couple different variations pop up, and this really played out at the two energies last weekend uh, going on. So we saw uh, Raja, who is a really good Michigan player, you know, consistently performs well at the Pro Tour, loves playing blue-white control. He showed up with traditional blue-white. He was doing that even during the four-color era, and it looked very strong. It's just a very much what you're expecting to see. If you think about uh, modern, actually, ironically, here, thinking back on this, a year ago, around today, we recorded an episode post the Star City Games Invitational. Um, and at that time, Blue White Control was looking to be one of the best control decks, and they had main decks Chalice of the Void. And that was a huge element to the deck. Um, and that is coming back now, and is still very strong. We saw Raja uh, win the uh, team event uh, doing that sort of thing. Now, we actually saw a friend of his and ours of the show, Zach Allen, play a similar deck, but splashing Ren and Six and having sort of a four-color deck that's basically blue-white. He has things like Archmage's Charm, which are just like blue, 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 right? So it is a blue-white deck, but has a couple triumphs just to cast Ren and Six in the early turns to make sure you hit the land, land drops, control the creature decks, and have that little bit of extra oomph to go along. And then finally, the last four-color when it comes to control decks, um, we are seeing Kahira and Karuga decks pop up. So the Kahira decks are kind of what people first thought of after the Yorion ban, where it's like, okay, we're just going to play Solitude Fury, maybe like an Omnath or two, a bunch of Leyline Bindings, a bunch of Endings, a bunch of Counter Spells, Ren Sex, Fairy. We're going to do all that stuff to win the game, and then uh, take over from there. While the um, Karuga deck is very kind of different and i want to emphasize this very clearly on the podcast i'm curious to see if spencer and abe disagree uh i think the karuga deck is one that people think is a meme and i think a lot of people thought like oh this is just a joke about companions but it's actually very good and has some precedent for 
precedence for being good in the format where we've seen glimpse combo be a thing in the past, along with all the cascade decks where essentially that deck plays a bunch of the card we just mentioned before, but instead of having prismatic ending and things like that, it just has more of the bigger answer cards and has things like fire ice and dead gone, which are a little worse, but in exchange, you get Karuga uh, and you also get cards like temporary lockdown, your main deck, which are like these crazy catch-alls. Um, and that deck kind of goes way over the top of people. Um, and is sort of trying to be the, like, successor to Four Color. And personally, I think the Karuga stuff is stronger than the Kahira stuff. Because uh, it actually just wins the game. So that those are kind of like the the five, four or five issue finger troll decks you'll see floating around. Um, we're still seeing some Scapeshift stuff. We'll talk about that later in the show. But yeah, that's kind of the control without having, like, a crazy combo finish. I know that was a lot. Feel free to take it from here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that kind of catches people off guard when they hear about people playing Karugas, that Karugas like, you know, it's the anti-Luris of companions. You have to make your deck really clunky and inefficient. But as has been shown by um, by Rhinos, you can play a very solid, fair game built around playing cards that do meet that same kind of deckling requirement of you can't have cards that cost more than two because you have to be under that for the cascade but what karuga does in the same way that yorian does which is really messed up when you think about it just how good yorian was um is that karuga does the job of being a threat that you can just rely on to actually do something to the game but also immediately draw a bunch of cards like immediately get way ahead of your opponent if your deck's constructed for it and while you know these kahira lists are kind of they're much more the traditional control. I will pull ahead incrementally over time, and then slowly the gap will widen. Um, the Karuga deck not only has the tools, but also gets to uh, like take a lot of exchanges and then cast this one card and pull so far ahead that it's completely controlled the game. Like Karuga is everything it needs all at once, whereas um, the Kahira approach is is much more. I'm going to one for one you and and grind you out. I have I have two thoughts. Um, the first thought is uh, I played ponies, so I you know I I played it. I also do coverage on it. Like I I played ponies. I know about this card. Uh, my second I have a question. The, does anybody actually in the companion thing is a meme at this point? Like it's it's not a meme. Like it it is it is it is not surprising that people would try the other companions to see which one could break the format. I think that that's not... It's not meaning. Like, that is smart deck building at this point. Yeah, I think that companions have continued to be proven since the moment that they entered Magic that they are by far the most powerful thing printed in the last, like, ten years. Oh, easily. And so not trying to use them is likely a pretty big mistake. Yeah, I, if I you can find a way to use them. I I hope I hope that I would emphasize what Mason said like it's it it is not a meme. It it's just not like I um personally like I think that you guys have said everything that needs to be said about that specific version. I'm not surprised to see Kira doing well across the board. I think that that card has already seen a ton of modern play, and it's it's pretty free. And, like, we'll continue to see ways to make these effects free for as long as they're in modern. Yep. Yeah, and I, I for think... what it's worth, it will also happen in Pioneer eventually. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I don't want to get too too lost in Karuga sauce, but we also just gave like a general overview of Karuga. There are like lots of Karuga decks now, and they are all pretty. Like even like the one that I think people when they first saw this one, I think a lot of people thought like, oh, this is inspiring spike being silly, but like the Blood Sun Lotus Field Karuga deck is actually one of the more impressive Karuga decks, simply because Blood Sun is so strong right now, in the same way Blood Moon's kind of strong, um, but in slightly different ways. But still, like that sort of thing is good, and I think the Kruger decks are, like, at least tier two players that, like, if I went to a big tournament and someone revealed Kruger, I would not be surprised and tell friends afterwards. You know, like, that just wouldn't be a thing. <laughs> Whereas I think before this, I would have been like, y'all, I just played against Kruger. <laughs> and then it was like, what? That's crazy! You know? So. Yeah, I want to talk about some of the decks that have also done well since the banning. and We'll just talk about them quickly. Domain Zoo, this is, like, one of the fastest decks in the format. If you haven't played against it, it is crazy how fast this deck can kill you. Like, uh, actually crazy. I encourage people to look at it. I don't want to go too deep into it. Scapeshift decks. I think that it, we've, we've actually covered this in ad nauseum on this podcast. Um, but does anybody have anything that they want to say about them? Uh, Amulet, uh, continues to do well. Uh, Fish is one that I think should surprise people considering the number of different types of control decks. If Fish becomes a part of the format, that would be pretty interesting. Um, it is it is not lost on me, though. The problems that Fish have, I don't think have actually gone away. What, the one thing I will say, uh, and I think we joked about it on the podcast when the new Lord was printed, that we're like, oh, like the 12th Lord, that's really, like the 20th Lord, that's really going to fix the problems. I will say it having Flash when lined up specifically against Fury, is big. And, like, you ha- you don't really experience that until, like, the first time you evoke it. And when it happened to me where my opponent had, like, a Vile up and Mana up, and I was like, oh, uh, three on this one Lord, one over here. Or, like, just four on this one Lord. I want to make sure I killed this. You know, and, like, you start spreading the damage out too much, and then they flash in a Lord, and you just suddenly lose that. And I do agree that it says a lot of other problems, but that is one small thing that really changed uh, the deck, I think, that's helped it a good bit, along with, I think that lore in general has proven to be really good. Yeah, yeah it turns I, I, way more of your draws into those Aether Vile draws that were really punishing in matchups where, like, you had to rely on, like, okay, I'll just okay. bolt the 3-3, three, three, and it's like, well, gotcha, here, counter, uh, counter your thing, counter your removal spell you're really relying on, and I'm pushing more damage next turn. It's, it's just a huge thing. Right? I'm a little disappointed in Mason for not being anti-Merfolk. I feel like your brand has really been lost on this podcast. Uh, and, you know, it's fine. You can switch brands, man. But I'm a Loon truther. Don't even get me started on Loon. I'm just saying for, like, the old school listeners of this podcast and oh, the, yeah. the beef, like, they might, they might, you're a little lost in the sauce here, man. Merfolk kind of based right now, I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> Looking for the Parmesan and then sauce. Abe, Abe doesn't know the beef. So, back when we were sponsored by Mer- by the man of Merfolk, do Merfolk you remember this? The... Oh, I remember. Okay, I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, well, leave a comment if you remember Maybe... the beef. Leave a comment. Does Merfolk fall into the Parmesan theory by Ooh. having Chalice of the Void in the deck? Ooh, that's what I want to know. Prisontron yeah, is no, next. But he says Blue Moon counts. Prisontron is next. Abe, do you have any thoughts on this deck? I probably wouldn't play it ever. I would never play this deck. It's pretty good. <laughs> I, I, 
I mean, like, it's pretty good. <laughs> but I wouldn't do it to myself. I, I have friends in you know what? my life. Like, I agree with you on Dex dropping off on the first one, Mason. Living End has definitely just seen a massive plummet. But Yogg actually won the challenge this weekend. Yeah, that's kind of one of the few big Yogg things. Yogg won the challenge in uh, front of the show. Ash, uh, Shutter MPG on Twitter, she top-aided the NRG. But besides that, a lot of Yogg players are actually moving away from Yogg and kind of saying, like, a lot of things that are happening in the format are pretty hostile to Yogg. And Yogg can still succeed. It has that combo finish and that proactive game plan along with Mana Sheet, and I love Yogg. But a lot of things going on around it in the format are having a lot of the players kind of, like, I know a lot of them are just not playing Yawgmoth. They're trying to find decks besides Yawgmoth to play. Uh, last thing that we want to cover is cards that stock has risen. And what's so funny is I want to cover a card that stock has went. Uh, with Blood Moon, the rise of Blood Moon. Like, what the heck? There's so many Blood Moons. Yeah, a lot of Saga, a lot of greedy mana bases, and a lot of creativity, which is like a greedy mana base, but also needs it to be mountains, but they need to also have effects along with They the also mountains. need to not be Dorvin Mines? <laughs> yeah, so it's a weird, you know, like, I, I want my deck to be mountains, but not like this moment. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a huge fan, and uh, it was funny, I remember the first time I ever played against Creative, the three-color creativity deck. Um, it was one of the 1Ks that I uh, that I played Merktide at. Uh, it might have even been her top eight. And I like, we, we, we talked about it afterwards. I don't think myself, Matt, or Quentin had ever seen the deck. It was when it was just Grixis, really new. I was like, yeah, I boarded in Blood Moon, and here's why. Turns out that was a good plan against them. Like, actually, it was really important. Uh, I, I think this card specifically, it, it, it stuck has gone up, but I think Magus of the Moon stuck has, been weirdly fluxating at the same time uh fluctuating sorry uh what do you think about this Abe? i think that um magus for for me i think that magus's stock has actually gone down a pretty considerable amount um because blood moon stock has gone up a pretty considerable amount and now it's back at a point where not every deck is just playing a bunch of Besejus, the ability to loot Besejus, which is a big issue for playing Blood Moon that led people to play Magus, which is more traditionally fragile anyway. Um, there's not as much, like, Eldamri's Calling or, like, just general tutoring your deck for a creature to find the Magus. And also, I think that, um, overall, even the control decks are kind of turning to, like, Leyline Binding as their catch-all answer. Um, so they already have like the same amount of answers for Blood Moon that they're they're like they don't feel like they need to play an additional set of amount things to deal with like random artifacts enchantments because they're already playing them. But because the format has Ragavan as like the best card again, um, they do play a large amount of removal that can just like tag creature um in a lot of the decks. So I think that like. It would be hard for me to talk about cards whose stock has risen without talking about Leyline Binding, because that card's stock has definitely uh, risen as we see it in, like... Has it risen, or did now. it start high and stayed high? I think it's risen, because I think it went from being a card that was only really a consideration as, like, oh, is this a marginal improvement to the best deck, to now that the best deck isn't just four-color deck, it's like, okay, now the Cascade decks that are 
in better position are playing it. The control decks playing Ren and Six, a big grab to playing Blue White Ren is that you also get to play Leyline Binding with your many, many uh, triumphs in your mana base to uh, to have this one mana catch all answered in some speed. And so I think that um, I think I would say it's stock has risen, but that that's just me. I I want to one agree with you. Uh, I was challenging you to, to have the conversation on the podcast. But two, I want to I want to bring up a point before the bannings. One of the things that uh, my testing team had talked about was, hey guys, and it was me who brought it up. I was like, I'm thinking of cutting Magus. I don't think there's enough Beside you right now, like to to warrant this card. Um, especially like Beside you loops. Like I just don't think that like I have to worry about that right now. Um, and I even like gathered like the number of top eights that had X number of Besejus in their 75s, and like the it was actually like like almost I think actually none of them had to. Um, and, but what we're going to, what I think will end up happening is the same thing that happened to Blood Moon when Beseju was printed, where people are like, I can now answer both Beseju and I can answer Leyline Binding, or sorry, I can answer Blood Moon and Leyline Binding with Beseju, thus increasing Beseju's stock eventually, and, and ha- having that whole cycle that we just had with these cards potentially happen again. Um... Mason, any thoughts on that before we move on? No, I think that's just true, and that's kind of the cool thing about magic, right? Is like this happens, so this happens, and we get that ebb and that flow, and like the action and reaction to things and sort of the metagame. And it's like, yeah, there's gonna be some weekend where you know it is going to be super right to have Magus over Blood Moon, and the people who are typically at the tippy top of the metagame moving forward, the ones who know to make that switch without having to have themselves get got by it at the big events. So. The next one is one that I think we called out, or we being, because I don't think I was on that episode, uh, was Chalice. Um, this is, I think, um, I think that you guys called this out specifically that this would happen, or Chalice's stock would go up. Um, back, I think it was either Jesse or Mason. You guys talked about just blue eye and Chalice decks being really big potential. Um, that this that it was factual. This card is now great again. Yep, it is really good. There are a lot of act, uh, sorry, there are a lot of one mana cards in the format, uh, and that's really important. But also, there's a good number of zeros, and not in like the cascade way. We've seen cascade decks in general kind of dip a little bit. Some people are still Rhino Tree thing. It's a little better than it was pre Yorion or during the Yorion days. But you know things like. Uh, the Breach deck kind of are weak to a Chalice on Zero when they're on the draw. And so we're seeing the Chalice deck just, you know, be a real part of metagame. Abe, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that you can, it's hard to point to any data point stronger than Chalice being good than an Eldrazi Tron deck doing well in an event. And I'm pretty sure Eldrazi tables in the Swiss of the... Um, of the challenge that Corey Bowmaster won with Breach last weekend, where, you know, that deck just, it had a proactive game plan, it had Chalice Void, and all of that together was enough to uh, to shut down what's going on around it. And I think that Eldrathic Tron's pretty bad unless Chalice Void is pretty good, because that's, like, the biggest angle I, that's, that's strong. I think Eldrathic Tron is pretty bad, and Chalice the Void fixes that problem. So, 
let's move on. Let's wrap up. Like, I, I think that modern... It, it's interesting. I, I, a lot of people really liked modern with Yorion. Like, they actually just thought it was a great format. And I, I don't disagree. I think that format was really fun to play. I think that there was, in fact, that when you went back to Paper Magic, the issues that Wizards talked about were true. Where, like, if you had hands like Spencer Howland, it was really hard to shuffle your deck and actually have it be shuffled and actually be able to do it. Like, I remember I played that deck at one, 1K and I was like, I'm never, I'm never playing this deck again. Like, it's, it's just not happening. Um, somebody handed me that deck and I just was like, I'm not, I'm not doing this. Um, I think that we have to make sometimes make those concessions, but I, I will I will say that like I don't think anybody doesn't think that format was fun, but I think that this format also seems really fun. Yeah, I definitely don't feel robbed of the experience of what that format was like yet. I don't think the format has like drastically changed in any ways without Yori on there, such that a lot of the decks that really made the format enjoyable and all the variety of things you could do, those haven't gone away because Yorion is gone. And I don't think there's any deck that's really stepping in to oppress anything to the level that that would stop happening, which is really, really good. I think um, I think it's a big reason that I was personally in favor of Yorion going before touching anything like Ren and Six or any of the other really linchpin cards of the four-color decks. Because I think that while those cards are really powerful, Modern right now is just a format full of really powerful cards that are kind of keeping each other in check and backing each other down. and. Um, as long as that keeps happening, I think it's always going to be going to be a fun one to play. I also will say, rest in peace, Yorion, and shout-outs to uh, patron of the show, Evan, who has... Who can, who can be my witness that it is not that hard to hand-over-hand shuffle an 80-card Yorion deck, even when it's double-sleeve, as I did to his at an RCQ right before the ban. The only thing he didn't he did wrong the was first, not good video. The effort. first thing that that Abe and I are gonna do when we meet in person is I'm gonna put my hand up to his hand, and then I'll be like, you know what, buddy, it's an issue. Player diff. <laughs> yeah, player diff. You got a good point. <laughs> anyway, Mason, what are your final thoughts? I think well, first of all, I think you correctly called some out. It is a player diff. This makes it hard for him to edit that out as well. And then, <laughs> and, then, and then, no, but I, I do, I think, you know, while my bank account has been hurting from the lack of Yorion in the format, um, it has been like a really cool sort of meta game, and it's kind of interesting to see what exactly is happening. And it's really cool to kind of see we're reaching week three now of Yorion being uh, banned and having like results since then. And there's not much consensus on what like number one and two are. When you ask like, a wide group of players, and especially top players, like you hear a lot of common overlap, right? Like you're here Breach or Murktai, and you're here Hammer, and you're here one of the controlling decks, but there isn't anything like there was before. And I think what kind of happened is we had the Luris decks, and those were kind of the best things for a little while. And then the Luris got banned, and then it was like, okay, well, Yorion's the best thing now, or Murktai. And it was like kind of those two the whole time. They kind of ping pong, and there was a couple weeks with like Living in was the best, but kind of went back and forth between them. And now we're still in that early really cool discovery phase where it's like, okay, what can we do? What's playable? What's happening? And that's always really exciting. The discovery part of magic is really fun. So really excited to see that. I'm really excited to see what happens. And I'm excited to get some more Karuga action going on. I, you know, 
I just like saying Karuga and then drawing yeah. cards. Mason out here trying to get trying to get cards banned. He already mentioned expressive iteration. He's mentioning Karuga. He's he's on a mission. It's, I would ban Bobble before expressive iteration. Two so. equivalently powerful cards: expressive iteration and Karuga. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I own you, six Karugas. You know, if so you are, did you buy them from Gingrid Lehigh? No, I bought them from LGS oh, for twenty-five right. cents. Not piece. as cool. I don't care. No, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you want to support the show, one of the best ways to do that is head on over to Patreon.com/slash/CCMTG. I'm a patron of the show, and you can ask questions in our Discord, uh, such as how do you test for a big event and decide on the deck. Um. Man, it has been a long time since I played a big event. Uh, I, I'm pretty unfortunate in that uh, Utah doesn't get them. Like, this summit event, if you are coming, come up to me. I'll probably hand you a wristband and say thank you. Um, is like, the first event, maybe just even, like, on the West Coast in a while. Uh, it, it's, it's, I mean, not that Utah's on the West Coast, it's the mountains, but, like, it's been a long time. Um but historically, it's kind of worked differently for me in a couple different ways. Uh, how I helped people test for the Pro Tour was different than how I tested for a GP or how I tested for an SEG. How I tested for an SEG was typically, you know, we'd get a group of people together that were going, talk about stuff in, like, group chats, uh, actually do testing together. And then everybody could kind of, like, come to their own conclusions as to where the format... Well. No, we would come to the conclusion of where the format was together, but, like, where we attacked from would be pretty different. Like, we don't spend as much time on it. For me, like, testing for a Pro Tour was, like, really different. Um, and in all honesty, I'm going to say this is how you should be testing for your RC. I'm not doing it because I'm too busy. Um, and even my testing team's not doing it because I think a lot of them are too busy and we have, uh, we have a, a huge tournament in Utah the week before, but Typically, it would involve uh, defining level zero. Like, you need to define level zero of whatever event, whatever huge event you're going to before you go there. Once that's done, you should come up with level zero deck lists. Like, a, a baseline of, like, what you're going to test against. Uh, after that, you then need to get together and decide, like, okay, what does this format look like in our heads? And what are the angles that we can attack from? Um, after that, the, the next step would be, okay, uh, which of these angles do I like and how, how do I want to go from there after doing a little bit of testing? Once you do that, it, it becomes about iteration and doing that cycle again and again and deciding which level you want to be on, right? Because now that you've done that, you've actually reached level one, right? And then level two comes in next and you say, okay, do you, am I happy with level one or do I need to be... On level two and the number of times where like team ccmtg being like danny uh michael and whichever other players on our team were qualified for the pro tour at the time we often ended up with the same list as like cfb within two cards or like the other things and the reason that that happened is following that iterative process um that that is historically what has worked for my teams uh i don't know what about you guys or i'll start with you abe yeah, so I think that that's a really, really good process. I think it's really easy to um, get kind of lost in being in the thick of it if you're someone who plays a lot of Magic, of being like, oh, you know, like I'll just keep playing the thing I'm playing, or um, 
you know, do I need to change everything up because this is a tournament and like different than me playing whatever weeklies I play um, on a regular basis. But I think that really outlining and defining the process um, in the same way Spencer did is that's like the best way you can do it. If you really spend the time and do your diligence on, okay, this is what everyone will come in with at the start. And this is what the information everyone's working with is. This is the conclusion I draw from that. Um, then once you have that conclusion, like, is this where I want to be? Or do I think there's a better conclusion I can draw by moving upwards from that and really going deeper? Um, what I'll say is if you're someone who has trouble deciding once they have all the information in front of them on a deck, something that's helped me a lot in the past has been um, actually something I learned from uh, from Jonathan Skenick, which was that you should play the deck where you can stomach the losses the best, because ultimately if it's that close, that is the, going to be the hardest part of your tournament is probably like getting through the entire thing playing at your best and when you play a deck where like if you can't stand playing burn and playing those games where you just like don't draw the last lava spike or like you know your opponent just winds up stabilizing at two life and you never close you shouldn't play burn because that's just going to mean that you're going to have a bad time doing it and you're not going to be as engaged or have as good a time so it's down to like two or three close choices play the thing where there's not going to be as many things that will tilt you about playing it um and play the thing I try to play the thing that I will enjoy the most. I want to I want to circle back on something you said. I, I hope that what I just said, it might sound really easy. It's actually not. Like it's like literally even people not qualified for this pro tour like we would we would have like I would buy everyone lunch and dinner and like we'd be at my house for like 3 to 5 days like just every inch of my house is covered in magic cards and I would facilitate this and you have like in order to do what I said it is it is not a, a like a small commitment and I think yeah, that hundreds, often, of, hundreds of hours yeah I, of I think when you combine it it really is and like when when you when people think like it's we had, we had a we had a I don't know if this actually came on the podcast about like teams maybe it did I think it actually might have been like the like a podcast fight behind the scenes but like it it is it is a lot of people being invested at a level that they have i mean for you locally like no reason to be invested at like you're simply putting in hours and hours of your time for something that you were not qualified for and you need those people to also have the skill level to be able to productively contribute um and that means that they also have to be engaged at that, right? Like right now, if I tried to do that for Pioneer, for the RC, I don't think I'd be that helpful. Um, so, you know, while Abe says like, oh, the way Spencer said is the best, it's only the best in the right circumstances. It is not the best to just do this with like a bunch of people that are going to come to the wrong conclusions. So I want I want to call that out. Yeah, and I want to clarify, I think that it's the best framework to use, even if you can't do it at the same level, you don't have that amount of man hours, like quality man hours available to you to really get to good conclusions. Like, you can still sit there and think about, okay, these are the best decks in the format or whatever, this is what I think people are going to play. Without doing a bunch of work to determine 
if that lines up with reality of the games, with what I think about the format, yes, can I rationalize another strategy of, okay, then in that case, maybe I should play something that does this. Well, um, and It doesn't and, have to be on that same scale every time, but that process of defining the levels and moving through it um, really does like a really good framework to... to yeah, make. I agree. Mason? Yeah, I think, maybe just to add on to that, because I think everything these guys have said has been really helpful... Let's like assume you don't have that sort of framework where you don't have people you can talk to. One way to like maybe kind of cheat it, like Abe was saying there, is like look at what people who are invested are saying. Sometimes they're going to keep things close to the chest, right? Like you'll see maybe this RC where the pro tours maybe you won't see like Reed or Manguchi or somebody like that, right? Like come out and say like they normally would. But there's probably some people and you can look to them and kind of be like, you know, you can go into like a Twitch streamer and be like, hey, what do you think of this? And try and just like get people's ideas. And just do the best you can with the information you have. That's one really good way. It's kind of reach out and get as much feel for that as possible if you can't have that sort of group or whatever, or you're trying to, you know, min-max hours as best as possible. Because that, that is a, a big part of it, like they said. You need to be able to commit that time. Um, and then I think it's funny. Kind of what Abe had said about being able to stomach losses, I think, is important. But what I was going to say is slightly different, where you have to figure out what your goals are for the event and what you as a person can handle and do. So what I mean by that is, if the only thing you really care about is winning, and you don't care about having a cool deck, or hanging out with your friends, or anything like that, and all you care about is winning, and that is the case, you should pick whichever deck you think is the best, or whatever, or it's going to give you the best chance to do that, even if maybe it's not a deck style that you find particularly fun. Because you're saying winning is the main thing. There's no like you know amount of fun that has to do with that. And sometimes you have to do that sort of thing, and it's not you know, the most, like, enjoyable time or whatever, but you can figure out, like, what's going to make you happiest long-term, right? Like, if you, let's say, top eight that GP or top eight the RC, you're going to be probably a lot happier than if, you know, if you're someone who likes winning a lot, than if you were to play some deck, like, let's say, even though I don't even think this is true, like, let's say red-black mid-range, right? And you're like, oh, I'd rather play red-black mid-range, I'll have more fun with that. Like, if you're that kind of person, then you might have just way more fun I me mean, like yeah i played i don't know mono red and you know i top eight and that's way cooler look i got this top eight blah, blah 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 right so just kind of be realistic and honest with yourself and make decisions um like that i think a lot of times we assume when people say this sort of thing and you're invested in this show that typically kind of winning and doing well at tournaments is the main thing but it's not always the case that's not always the case for tournaments too i've played tournaments where they're kind of like bigger tournaments quote unquote but like I was kind of going to have fun for the weekend and do stuff. And like playing the magic thing was like a thing everyone was doing. It was like a communal event, you know? And I was like, okay, not playing maybe the best thing possible in order to have fun and sort of enjoy my time. So just be realistic with yourself and your goals. That is going to do it for the Patreon question. Really quickly, uh, I think that this comment on YouTube really applies to us this week. Uh, It says, love that we get the real you. Love your content. Cheers, bro. This was in response to actually a comment that I left uh, about about the the show, the last show. Um, one, I, I think I think that's something that I really appreciate. I'm just gonna give a shout out to my co-host here. I, I think that we get the real us pretty often on this show, where we get to, you know, see. If you know Mason, like uh, he is very Mason on this show. He does not become less masony out he actually becomes more amazing like if you think you know mason like he's more mason than mason is on the show um 
but you get the real Mason. Like you get you get him, and Abe is Abe. You're you're at least from what I my interactions with there you. ain't Miller me out there, dog. Yeah, it's, it's just like you know, it, it is it is really fun to do the show with these guys, and I think that that brings out us. Um, so it's it's really appreciated from my perspective. So I wanted to use this YouTube comment to say it. If you want to hear YouTube, your YouTube comment, uh, talk about the Parmesan in the comments. Uh, speaking of which, uh, let's wrap up. You can find me at Spencer30H. You can find the show at uh, CCMTG on Twitter. Uh, and then like, subscribe, leave comments. Abe, where can people find you? Find me over at Twitter.com slash morenothings, where you can uh, also DM me for increased about coaching in any and all formats. I actually probably won't have that much time available as I'm going to be devoting a decent amount of time to helping people prepare for ERC and also preparing for um, SCG Con in Philadelphia coming up in like two weekends. So um, yeah, it might be hard to get in get on my calendar for that, but uh, anytime after that, you can always uh, we can always set something up. How about you guys? Awesome. You can find me over at twitch.tv slash the Mason Clark. You can find me here each and every week. You can find me over at Cartoon each every week writing an article over there you can find me over on twitter and everywhere if you want to get coaching that sort of thing i have ways to reach out to me about that we can figure that out and then finally uh, i can officially announce that i will be doing commentary for the nrg series uh starting this weekend so you can check me out over at twitch.tv slash nrg series i believe is the exact url uh but yeah you'll see me most of saturday and all of sunday so i'll be in the booth Awesome. Thank you, everybody, so much for uh, listening, and we'll see you guys on next week with another episode of Constructed Criticism.